Moreover, what defines us as a species is our complex culture, and scientific inquiry for its own sake is an important part of understanding our role in the world. Imagine encountering intelligent life from another planet, I said. Would such an auspicious meeting include explaining mundane details like how the latest video game console operates, or would it instead focus on who we are as two highly evolved species and what brought us to our present state of being? We need to learn our history to understand who we are and to speculate on where we might be going. L'histoire est un grand présent et pas seulement passé, as the French philosopher Alain wrote. History is a grand view of the present and not simply something in the past. But there was another reason this information was important, I explained. We live today in a highly globalized world, one where people come into contact with others they may never have encountered only a century before. Africans mix with Europeans, Asians, and Native Americans to create a social melange that's unprecedented in human history. Couple this exposure with linguistic and cultural differences, and you have a potentially volatile recipe. We are keenly attuned to such differences, and they help define how we see ourselves. Part of what our genetic work shows, though, is how trivial these differences really are. Underneath the surface, at the level of our DNA, we are nearly identical. The broader relevance of our work, I explained, is that we should really start to see past the superficial features that divide us and start to recognize that we're all part of an extended human family. To the extent that we can see ourselves as connected at the genetic level, we might be able to overcome some of our prejudices. This notion seemed to have special relevance to the members of this audience, many of whom had recently witnessed the brutal terrorist attack in which Islamic militants from Pakistan had bombed and gunned down people in several locations in South Mumbai and taken control of two landmark hotels, the Taj and the Oberoi. Over the course of four days, the terrorists killed 164 innocent people. Nine of the militants died as well. For India, the social impact was like 9-11 in the United States, though thankfully with fewer deaths. It would have been natural to feel enraged, to want vengeance, to use this attack as an excuse for further violence. However, the Indian reaction, according to my host at the conference, was not to dwell on negative emotions. It's brought us all together, all India, he told me as we were weaving through traffic the night I arrived. The nature of this whole encounter, along with the quote from Richard Tompkins that begins this foreword, highlights the theme of this book. During my career as a geneticist and anthropologist, I've been lucky to work with many people around the world, ranging from senior politicians and the heads of major corporations to tribal foragers eking out a precarious existence in remote wilderness locations. What has struck me over and over again is the huge amount of change taking place in the world today, regardless of where one lives. Some of this change is good, such as the overall decrease in poverty during the course of my lifetime and the drop in the birth rate in developing countries. Other things, though, like 9-11 and the terrorism in Mumbai, have not been so welcome. Everywhere, there's a feeling that the world is in flux, that we're on the brink of a historic transition, and that the world will be fundamentally changed somehow in the next few generations. The pace of technological innovation is accelerating, and we're all swept up in it. Think of all the things, indispensable to your daily life, that you've only learned to use in the past decade or so. Email, Google, instant messaging, and mobile phones spring to mind immediately. But there's also hybrid car technology, curbside recycling, and social networking sites like Facebook. All have found widespread application only since the mid-1990s, and yet today we can't imagine living without most of them. Trying to imagine what the world will be like at the close of the 21st century is nearly impossible. With all of these amazing technological advances, though, 
has come a great deal of ancillary baggage. The unprecedented rise in chronic disease in westernized societies is perhaps the most obvious example. I say westernized rather than western because of the growing incidence of heart disease, diabetes, and plain old obesity in the developing world, particularly in places such as India and China. As these societies become more like our own, they're taking on many of our worst attributes as well. Psychological disorders such as depression and anxiety are also on the rise, and drugs to treat these disorders are now the most widely prescribed in the United States. This seemingly inexorable march toward Western unhealthiness made me wonder why it happened in the first place. Is there some sort of fatal mismatch between Western culture and our biology that's making us ill? And if there is such a mismatch, how did our present culture come to dominate? Surely we are the masters of our own fate, and we created the culture that's best suited to us, rather than our culture driving us. The answer to this question was a long time in coming, much to the chagrin.